And here we are. Notice today, for those of you on the Internet, that I'm going heavily committed to our product placement financial bonanza here today. This is actually a present that I got um, for my for Cinco de Stevo. I'm very proud of it. It's beautiful. I suspect any day now that we should get some kind of legal action directed our way from this particular company that refuses to recognize the impact I have on the Internet. So I've, I've doubled down today. We, like I said, we've made a full commitment. We'll see how that works. At least they could do is acknowledge my effort. So anyway, I'm quite proud of this. Uh, I'm still waiting for my black tie to go with my black outfit. Ah, back to business. May the 15th, 2016. It's a beautiful 75 degrees here at Anchorage, Alaska. It's, we consider that fantastic. Very hot. And this is lecture discussion number 241 on the book of Romans. Well, I know this is going to cause shock and amazement, but we're leaving behind Acts chapter 5, kind of, sort of, mostly today, because I have to get back to Numbers 15, 37, 41, the blue tassels. Uh, that will help, I believe, underscore Acts 5, 1 through 11. God tells Israel to put blue tassels on the corners of their talits as a memorial. And Israel was to remember the wickedness of the man who gathered wood on the Sabbath by putting those blue tassels on the corners of their uh, talits. Now, you notice how I'm saying that. I'm identifying it as the talit that they would put over their heads that mimicked, if you will, the tabernacle of Moses when... when uh, it was looked down when Israel would come out in their order in front of the tabernacle, all the tribes, and you look down at the men, you would see them mimicking, if you will, for lack of a better word, the tabernacle design by what they put on their heads. And that is what has those tassels in it that are blue, and that is what's on the corners. And so uh, he told Israel to put blue tassels there to remember the wickedness Remember this man who gathered wood on the Sabbath. All of Israel had participated, if you remember the story, in the execution of the man gathering wood on the Sabbath. And that's Numbers 15, 35 through 36. And this event was to be ingrained. God wanted it ingrained in Jewish society, and he did so with the use of these blue tassels. It's an ordinance, for lack of a better word. Throughout their generations, they still do it today. Numbers 15.38. Now, obviously, this incident at Numbers 15 and that of Ananias at Acts 5, they bear resemblance, some resemblance at least. I doubt that there's any that would contest that. There, I've not yet found a scholar who says that is not the case. And that's, that rare anonymity is actually to be paid attention to in my mind because of the scarcity of unanimous thought in the Biblical realm of scholarship, for lack of a better term to call that. I doubt that anybody is going to contest that there is a relationship between Ananias and this man gathering wood. How much of a relationship? Well, we'll argue over that. Each one of these events, uh, each one of those men uh, is executed. It results in execution. So we should, it would be wise to evaluate the two men together. Let me interject really quickly here. It's very common to see Sapphira and Lot's wife connected. 
Now, really, you're saying to yourself, he's not going to go back to Lot's wife and salt and salt covenant and all of that. Is he really going to do it in order to solve Sapphira? Dave's over here hoping that I will. And I have to. I know I do. I've told you to figure out those three hours of Sapphira. And we will. Hopefully today. Okay, not today. I got I got buried in Numbers 15. But I hope you'll understand the, the order as it eventually it reveals itself. But both Ananias and uh, the man gathering wood on the Sabbath, both of those men were executed by God. They do belong together, if for no other reason than determined then to to, then to determine excuse me now everyone on the internet will wonder if that's going to fall off see how i oh you're doing it too see it's a technique isn't it i'm a professional here don't you forget it see if i can say this sentence again we got to put them side by side just to determine if they're, if the man gathering wood and the offering of Ananias are equal. By that I mean, are they the same criminal operation? Is gathering wood and Ananias' offering, do they have a strong connective relationship? God does move to stop them. He removes man gathering wood. He removes Ananias publicly. Everybody in Israel saw that the man gathering wood was condemned to death by God. No mistake. Blue tassels, remember it for all generations. Ananias, instantly dead. Those who witnessed that, that, that event, they heard, they saw great fear in the case of Ananias. Everyone knew without question that God would not allow Ananias to continue to stand. And as all of you are aware, sadly, the predominant interpretation of these two passages, Numbers 15, Acts 5, within the secular media and academia is that they are attestations um, that the God of the Bible is arbitrary, that he's insolent, that he's savage, he's volatile, and therefore he is what? If you have that position on God, what have you declared him to be? You have declared him to be the source, the author of evil. And that's what they do. That is the modern secular reaction. That's modernism. That is what the media and the academic realm in this country do immediately with regard to Numbers 15, 32 through 36, and Acts 5, 1 through 11. And you know the arguments. You also know the argument is vacuous. It's thoughtless. Infantile probably would be the best description. It takes me, maybe, not just me, it takes anybody, maybe three to five minutes to destroy it, hardly any consideration or effort is necessary to get rid of the God is the author of evil argument. So if you ever find yourself in that pot or in that muck, realize immediately that you're, the pot's on fire and the muck is quicksand. Unfortunately, as is evidenced now more than ever, our country is brimming with with illiteracy. That is a fact. Negligent thinking. I could rant here. I won't, really. I'm not going to. I, 
I'm a little bit more dismayed about this than I should be, perhaps. It's gotten to the point where stupidity uh, is celebrated. It's esteemed in our country today. So those who heard my ranting, I realize, wouldn't understand or care about any piece of it. It's not entertaining. So I don't have that many bullets left. I'm lacking vitality. And I'm aware that my ammunition is going away. So I'm conserving it. And that's truthful. I really do feel that way. You may have noticed that I changed locations. Some of you thought it would spill then, wouldn't you? Anyway, God did not, he cannot, listen to how I said that, God did not and cannot, will not, act in any way that is evil. Never. Some will argue that cannot isn't applicable. I will defend cannot. And if you have him being petulant, Petulant is in opposition to omniscience, and he is omniscient. Petulance is in opposition to omnibenevolence, or goodness, pure goodness. So, it is for us to reason the true nature of the man gathering wood in Numbers 15, 32 through 36. Let me put that on the board for the people that are watching. My really cool, fancy pen from Japan. Oops. So we have to figure out what's really going on here. And I think once we do in Numbers 15, 32 through 36, we're also going to be able to determine what's actually occurring in Acts 5, 1 through 11. Now, I know I've done, I've pretty much given as much as I can give in Acts 5, 1 through 11. I have a little bit more to go. Those of you who might have missed this on the Internet, it's all there now, apparently, someplace on tube face. And so you can find it there. Face tube. Whichever one is correct. Or both. Maybe both are correct. If, you, if your first attempt at Numbers 15.32 or, and or Acts 5, 1 through 11 were to produce an outcome, if you're going through it and you say, okay, what really happened here? I think this. If your first attempt would be that the man gathering wood on the Sabbath was killed by God for a benign behavior. Very common uh, commentary, by the way. They say, well, he was just gathering wood. He wasn't supposed to, and he really didn't know. Or that Ananias merely withheld an insignificant portion from an otherwise generous gift. Wow, that was a very generous thing he did. He just kept a little back. It's not that big a deal. That is commonly claimed. That is the predominant view, as I've said before. If you have that view now evaluated, what are you saying about the character of God? You're obviously saying that he's evil because only an evil person would execute some well-meaning, innocently mistaken man. Therefore, God is so declared to be evil at those two passages and many others, they will tell you, because that's how they conclude them. And that can't be true. But primarily, think of it this way. You are now on whose side? Where did that idea come from? Who thought of it? Who brings, who accuses God of this? That you kill people who were just mistaken? Someone in the third row mouthed the answer. Let's all point at her. 
That's what we do here, you folks on the Internet. If somebody gets something right, we all cheer, and usually I write their name on them. No, I don't. Who accuses God of killing the innocent? It's, it's everywhere. Who brings accusations that our Creator God is unjustified in His judgment? Who began this lie? Because that's the side you're on, if you ever conclude that in the Bible. And you can conclude that in many, many places. Trust me on that. It's astonishing to me. How many people have so concluded that all over Scripture? So figure out which side you're on at least when you're doing this, when you're going through in your own private Bible study. Whose side am I on? And if you find yourself on the side of those who have deemed God to be evil, well, time to panic. You're in a pot that's on fire or you're in mud that is going to envelop you. Discard the conclusion of that conclusion of the passage that you're reading. Drop it like a hot rock. It cannot. It is never, not ever true. That is never the true interpretation. So what's really happened? Let me repeat it at Acts. Acts 5, 1 through 11 and Numbers 15. If God is never evil, what's your other option? God is good. So how is it good that he had this man gathering wood executed by all of the congregation? They stoned him, the entire congregation. How is that good? How is it good that Ananias was struck down? God always strikes for what purpose? Why does he do it? What did you say? You can't get two right in a row here. I couldn't, I couldn't hear you. Could you have your daughter translate for me? Mercy, she says. I knew that. I just wanted her to say it out loud. I can read lips. I know what you're saying back there always. And I look at the tape later in case I can't figure it out. She said, mercy. And that is absolutely true. I will reword it for her. God always strikes in order to save. He's saving. God strikes to save. Jesus Christ is salvation. It is what he does. He is the protector, the savior, the one who rescues. So God is rescuing. So who is being saved? Who is being rescued when he strikes Ananias? Who is being saved? Who is being rescued when he has the entire congregation of Israel uh, stoning the man who is gathering wood on the Sabbath. Clearly, that is what he is doing in both passages. He is saving. He is being merciful. He is rescuing. There is gravity here. There's grave sin occurring. High threat level, DEFCON 29, whatever the language is. He's killing the killers is what he's doing. Think Sniper. And he's killing the killing the killers before they kill. Here's the question. Do the killers know they're killing? There's some debate over that. People think that's funny, by the way. I know Amanda doesn't. But I'm going with the crowd. <laughs> I must be tired today, huh? I am. My leg hurts really bad. I'm falling again. And, uh, 
It just is the way it is. I don't know that it's ever going to not hurt now. God protects, he guards with force when necessary, his truth of salvation. And he moves quickly as contrasted to being long-suffering. Normally, he is long-suffering. What does long-suffering mean? The fact that God does not wait at Acts 5. That's astonishing. That's very important. When God, he always, seemingly always waits. He's not waiting here. That's a profound clue, a powerful fact. Try to recognize the great significance of God moving with urgency. Now, I recognize urgency is in conflict with omniscience. I'm saying it to give you the feel from a human perspective. When you, when you sense that God, when you use your humanity and say He is moving quickly with speed, with urgency, that's a powerful clue for you that something amazing is happening because normally He waits. If you don't think so, look at your own life. He waits. We have tremendous amounts of mercy. So when you see mercy being exhibited in a quick manner, that tells you something amazing, something astonishing is occurring here. At Numbers 15, 32 through 36, the truth of salvation is within the symbol that is the great Sabbath rest. He is Gathering wood on the great Sabbath rest, this man is. And God moves with urgency. So therefore, God is defending his great Sabbath rest, isn't he? Defending. Those of you who are audio, I'm making quotation marks, understanding that the words I use are not applicable to an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God. So let just give me some grace here. Mercy. God is defending his great Sabbath rest. This man is gathering wood on it, and there's a reason that he's doing it. And God is defending, again, protecting, guarding. He is taking out somebody who is a threat, a high-level threat, and he is saving and rescuing the people that are threatened. And so this, this great Sabbath rest and all that it encompasses is being... Uh, Shielded. And at Acts 4.33.5.11, the same thing. The singular truth of what's being defended is given to us plainly there. The truth of salvation that he is, is plainly given. And let me quote it for you. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. And Ananias is immediately, instantaneously killed in a very short verse or two after that. And that tells you the connection, what God is doing. He is defending the resurrection of Christ. And I have said over and over and over again in this, uh, this deviation, for lack of this little sojourn into the wilderness with Acts 5, that the great Sabbath rest and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are ultimately inseverable. You might remember how many times I've said it. I'm pounding away at it trying to make sure you get it. Not you. You on the Internet. You get everything here. The people on the Internet, the folks here are really smart. They want you to know that. Notice they're laughing. <laughs> it's the heat today that's making me like this. 
and my leg hurts. Did I mention that my leg hurts? Are you having any sympathy for me? I hope so. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace alone, also impossible. They're indivisible, impossible to divide. Because, you see, the resurrection of God by God, that's important to know. The resurrection of God by God. And the giving of God from God are likewise inseparable. God resurrects himself and God gives himself And the fundamental of all of that, in my view, is salvation must be freely given. Let me repeat this. Salvation must be freely given for it to be salvation. If it is not by grace, it is not salvation. If it is not free, it is not life. If it is not a gift, it is not salvation. If it is not salvation, it is not life, and therefore it is death. Salvation must be freely given for it to be salvation. Somebody comes to you, knocks on your door, and says, these are the things you must do in order to be saved. If I have to do something to be saved, some, accomplish some work, have some statutes of obedience, then that is not life, that is not salvation, that is death. God gives himself freely. Resurrects himself. God resurrects God and God gives God. Does that make sense? I hope it does. That is not a sign for those of you who were wondering if I'm in any danger. Salvation is what? How does salvation relate to the great Sabbath rest? How does God, how does Christ define salvation? He says, come to me, you who are what? Weary. Salvation is rest from what? What are you resting from? He's the great Sabbath rest. Come to me, all of you who weary from what? From the burden of sin. Salvation is rest from sin. So the great Sabbath rest is a portrait of, It is a shadow, it is a dim picture, not dim, actually, it's quite quite bold, but it demonstrates the doctrine of salvation through Christ alone. And if God does not resurrect himself, there is no salvation. So he had, the resurrection of God by God has to occur or there is no salvation. Let me say it this way. If God does not lift himself up, there is no salvation. Now, Think that through. Why isn't there salvation unless God resurrects himself? That is a fundamental of Scripture. Let me go a different direction. How much power is required to lift up Jesus Christ? Let's say another way, just to put it in a more human standing. How heavy is Jesus Christ? If I'm going to lift up the infinite God of creation, what is required? How much power? Or if you prefer, what is is required to reestablish the perfect humanity of Christ with his Godhood? Christ is disembodied. Would you agree? 
disembodied at a point, wasn't he? The body was in the tomb, and he was not. How much power is required to go and gather the infinite God and reestablish him with his perfect humanity? I have the perfect humanity of Christ with the Godhood of Christ. Go ahead, start explaining that. Start communicating that process. Try it. I'll wait. What's it take to do that? This is why I find information theory to be so interesting. It's a new, not new, it's a field of physics, as you know, and I find it to be fascinating, and I read as much of it as I can. How much information does Jesus Christ possess? This is actually a very simple question with an accompanying simple answer. He possesses all of the information. All means all from all of time. How much then is necessary to use computer language that I have no concept of, so I might be using it incorrectly. I'm not interested in computers, as most of you know. How much is necessary then to reinstall all of the information into Christ's perfect human body? If that is even applicable, I'm using it as a thought experiment, aren't I? I'm giving you an analogy that may not be doctrinally perfect. Isaiah 6 gives us a glimpse of Christ. You should read it. It's fascinating. It's a vision, but he describes Christ in the tabernacle, the holy tabernacle of God, as best he can describe him. And he is massive in the vision of Isaiah. It's impossible. It's merely a representation of the indescribable. That is what Isaiah gives you. So what does it take to gather Christ and resurrect him? Lift him up. How much? Obviously, it requires omnipotence. So do you see the difference between his resurrection and our resurrection? Any people that say to me, I'm going to be resurrected just like Christ. I just go, oh. I would kick you if I had two good legs, but I don't, and I can't risk the other one. I have a cataract in this eye, so I wear glasses so that maybe I'll survive one more day with one eye. I am now the one-eyed fat man. I am. And I do have some bold talk in me, not enough. Point in all of that is I just want you to recognize that you will, by comparing yourself to Christ, what have you done to yourself? You thought I was going to say, what have you done to Christ? Well, you have done it to yourself first. What have you done to yourself comparing yourself to Christ? You have elevated yourself, but simultaneously you have degraded him. Stop it. His resurrection required a much bigger crane than yours. Infinite crane. It takes infinity to resurrect infinity. That truth is very rarely discussed in Scripture. Don't ask me why. Okay, ask me why. Because the church is now the dumbest it has ever been of all time. That's why. And getting dumber by the minute. In our lifetimes, I expect perfect dumbness. Absolute dumbness. Only God can resurrect God. Duh. 
point of all of that is of that thought exercise is for us to consider the magnitude of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't make it a simple process. Have respect for it. Have awe for it. It is a solemn, solemn event. As an aside, uh, all of the other God alone passages or the only God passages in Scripture connect directly to the resurrection of Christ. What I mean by that is every time you see the Godhead, the triune Godhead doing something and saying only God can do this, this is something that is in the purview of only God, you can relate that immediately to the resurrection of Christ because only God can raise God. That's, uh, that's why I'm my personal favorite, as you know, in the Bible uh, with regard to these kinds of subjects is the stretching out of the universe. He says only I can do this. I know that relates, the stretching out of the universe relates to the resurrection of Christ. It is one of those only triune God things. Anyway, I, I shouldn't veer off into that uh, topic again unless everyone runs for the buffet. We have Matt and we have Kentucky Fried Chicken today, don't we? I got an email from someone that was really brilliantly written, as so many of them are. He wrote, he said, uh, Dear Cliffside to the Perpetually Eating Congregation. And he is absolutely right about that. We are. That's what we do best here. Yes, sir. Um, and I don't disagree at all. You and I have discussed this, and eventually I'm going to uh, address it, aren't I? As long as you keep reminding me, aren't you? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. The man gathering wood on the Sabbath and Ananias' offering then have something in common besides God's very seemingly rapid for lack of a better word, awe, response. Response, again, is a human word. God would shield his plan of salvation, not unlike placing his glory in the path of the tree of life. Because he does that too. He protects the tree of life. Once Adam has fallen, humanity has fallen, he stops fallen humanity from going to the tree of life and therefore being eternally in sin. So that's how he functions. You see constantly these examples. If you have no idea why God placed himself between fallen humanity and the tree of life, see me afterwards. If you're listening by the Internet, the lecture is somewhere out there. He does it because if he didn't do it, no one would be saved. And his character, his goodness, his will to save, it will prevail. Because all of us would go kill ourselves. See that part where I said we're dumb. Okay, so God moves, for lack of a better term. It's hard to come up with a term that works here. God who is good, God who is love, God who is merciful, God who is long-suffering, the creator and the sustainer of all life, the God who is the only source of life, ends the threat that is the man gathering wood on the Sabbath as he ended the threat of Ananias. So in that sense... They are connected. So we should reread Numbers 15, 32 through 36 before we continue. I should note before we read Numbers 15, 32 through 36 
that which is subsequent to the man gathering wood on the Sabbath, that which is subsequent to Numbers 15, is Numbers 16. Numbers 16 is immediately after Numbers 15. I know where can you get this kind of insight. This is astonishing. What is number 16? See, I'm, I'm saying to you that the context that establishes number 16, just like the context that establishes Acts 5, if you pull Ananias and Sapphira out away from Acts 1 through 4, you will have no idea what Ananias and Sapphira are really about. Acts 1 through 4 to the end of Acts 4 is coalesced, is culminated in Acts 5, 1 through 11. And so all those pieces that are there are now in Acts 5, 1 through 11 that occurred in Acts 1 through chapters 1 through chapter 4. So you can figure out Ananias and Sapphira by its context. Now I'm saying to you that Numbers 16 is built on Numbers 15. So what you find in Numbers 16 has occurred because of the man gathering wood and his execution and the blue tassels. What is number 16? It is the Korah Rebellion. That happens because the man gathering wood was executed and we put blue tassels on the Talits of the nation of Israel. So we should assume it's related, shouldn't we? I'm saying to you that I believe it is, but you should always assume that it is. So let's go ahead and read Numbers 15:32 through 16 to establish what happens in 16 that comes from 15. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, excuse me, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him under guard. He's being guarded. Why would you put him under guard? Because he's a threat. Who's being threatened? Because it had not been explained what they should, what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely, let me put that on the board. God says, must surely. Who said it? God said it. Does God know? Take what he said. The, God, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses. So after that happens, God now speaks again. God says he must surely be put to death. Now that happens, God's going to explain it to all of us. God spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. This is why he was put to death. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments through their generations and put a blue thread in the tassels. Got to have blue tassels. thousand questions now come flying at you, right? And this is that which, which, if for no other way to explain it, simulates the tabernacle of Moses on each and every individual. He says to us, doesn't he, don't you know that you're really a tabernacle of Moses? Okay, he says, don't you know you're really the temple of Solomon? 
you're designed, I'm designed, we are designed similarly to the temple, to the tabernacle. There is a holy of holies in all of us. There are gates. Okay. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all of the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry in which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. I, what he's saying to you is what? I created you. I'm your creator. You need to wear these tassels now to remember what happened here. Now Korah immediately asked me how long. Now Korah, the son of Ishkar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abram, Ab, Ab, I'm sorry, Ab, Abiram, and the sons of Eliab, and on the sons of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation. How big a congregation of Israel do I have? I got millions. I got 250 leaders. So how many men are coming? This is a big army, isn't it? 250 officers at least. I might have 250 generals. 100,000 men, 200,000 men, they rise up. Why? has something to do with Numbers 15. So let me read it again. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves before the assembly of the Lord? And Moses, by the way, fell on his face when he heard that. He knew this is big time trouble. What is going to happen here? We just killed a man for gathering wood. Now we got these guys rising up. Thousands upon thousands of men. Obviously, Korah or Korah did not accept the meaning of the blue tassels. We should figure out then what the blue tassels are, what it is that they represent, how it is that they are representative. This is the probably the ideal place to add in Ananias's lie. Ananias, it says, did not just lie to men. Acts 5.4, why have you conceived such a thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God, Peter says to him. That raises the obvious question, doesn't it? What exactly was Ananias' lie to God? Ananias lied to God. And that lie, what lie, if you want to put it this way, what, what lie will God consider a serious, grim danger? Because that's the one that Ananias used. God can't let it remain. It is beyond ominous. It's a menace that is too great. 
What lie to God is this? Formulate the lie in your mind. What did he say? In the way he said it. And by the way, oops. When I was teaching high school, I had what I called the stupid box. I put it over here, like this. And every time some young person said something that was inane, I would say, excuse me a minute, and I'd come over there and make a mark in the stupid box. At the end of most classes, the box was completely, totally black. In those days, it was chalk. I know no one on the Internet will know what chalk is, so I went ahead and pretended that I had a dry erase marker. Finally, I had a teacher come in during one of my classes that I did. I can't remember. It might even have been a, uh, an administrator come in, and every time, and I didn't know, had my back to them most of the time, I'd hear something, and I'd go over and put a mark. And uh, finally, somebody asked me what the box was, and I said, well, whenever somebody says something that is unintelligent, I keep track of it, see how much work I have to do. And they said, well, you, you don't realize it, but every time this administrator that came in to proctor or to, to uh, supervise the class, every time he said something, you would walk over and put something in the box, and we wanted to know what it was. <laughs> Naturally, they promoted him. That's how it worked. <laughs> anyway, this is to remind me that I say, by the way, way too many times. By the way. Hopefully it will come out of my system. The test of Sapphira and the lie of Ananias are intimately, intricately linked together. They are woven. We know that the lie of Ananias and the test of Sapphira diverge. They coincide. Harmonize might be the better word. So, we know that Exodus 16.3 is the fundamental the under the substrate. I should say this really fast. Clarence Larkin figured out what he called the lie or the seed of the serpent going underneath the Bible everywhere. And he made the point that you should always look for what Satan is doing. Even if you don't see him in the text, there is this film, there is this underlayment that is Satan. He is always there. Not omnipresent, but he's, he's moving through the Bible. Uh, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman are almost always together. And so always pay attention. Always is too many words to use. Always. I'll need an always box. Try to teach yourself to pay attention to what Satan is doing underneath the surface. 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 Exodus 16.3, clearly at play here with Ananias and Sapphira. That's the test. That's where you find the definition of the word test God. Why do you lie to God? Why do you test God? They intersect. Um, and we already established that. Exodus 16.3, they said, God, you're bringing us out here for the sole purpose of killing us. That is a lie. It's not what he was doing. He was doing the opposite. He was bringing them out of Egypt to save them. But I can't get past this line to the omniscient creator of all things. I just can't do it. Lying to God. Who thinks of this? 
What lie is this? Let's see if the blue tassels might provide some relevance. I think they will. After the congregation stoned the man gathering wood, what day of the week did the execution take place? They caught him on a Sabbath. When was he executed? Sabbath is a Saturday. What day of the week do you think he was executed? Probably not on the Sabbath. I hope you realize that. What would be the most likely day he is executed? Sunday. Consider that. Anyway, God has Moses install the blue tassels. So here comes the question. First question is, why blue? Of red, blue, and purple, and some will add in gold, white, and black, but of red, blue, and purple, God chose blue as the color of the tassel that would signify the execution of the man gathering wood on the Sabbath and would be in the congregation of Israel forever. Blue and wood are put together now. Not red, not purple. Blue is God's choice. And when Israel looks upon the blue tassel, they're going to remember this event of the man gathering wood on the Sabbath, that they're also going to remember all of the commandments of the Lord and do them so as not to fall into harlotry uh, to which their eyes and their hearts were and are inclined. So he says to them, listen, I'm going to give you blue tassels because this man gathering wood. Have to kill that. Have to stop it. Because right now you guys are doing what? Boom. Going right into harlotry. Right into abominations right into adultery as you are inclined. You're going to put these tassels on. Remind you, don't do this. So it's obvious that the man gathering wood on the Sabbath had followers, didn't he? He had followers who forgot the commandments of the Lord, who rushed towards the harlot into adultery. How many commandments then of the Lord are there? If I said, get out your pieces of paper, write down all the commandments you can get, all of the commandments of the Lord, how many would you turn in? Please don't say ten. How many? Can we agree there's a lot? There's a lot. What's the meaning of the commandments? Why do you have commandments? Why did God give Israel commandments? What's the purpose of the commandments? Why do we have commandments? Well, that's true, but how do they save? John 5.39 The Old Testament, the commandments, if you will, but all of the Old Testament testifies of Christ. Those commandments are designed by God to point you to Christ. The reason He wants you to keep all the commandments is so that you will find Christ. That's the purpose. The commandments don't save you. Christ saves you. The commandments testify of Christ. And all, by the way, means all. All the commandments of the Lord guide the wise towards Jesus Christ, His person, His redemptive work. To understand the person and the work of Christ, one needs to study the symbols and the types that portray him in the Old Testament. That's why he commands us to do that. That's why I do it here, because it's a direct order. I'm not going to stand up there and say, I didn't do it. 
I'm going to stand up there and say, I always did it. Every act of God has a relationship to his plan of salvation. Therefore, every act of God is, is, a, per, is a relevatory aspect of the person of Christ. So when he says, when he ends his order to attach blue tassels to the corners of the talits with, I brought you out of Egypt. Notice how he did that. You go back. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. He gives that to them after he says, put blue tassels on. I should immediately then, we should immediately connect the blue tassels to the rescuing of Egypt from the grasp of the Pharaoh in Egypt. What did God do? The blue tassels have something to do with bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. What was happening in Egypt? What would you call them? This testifies of Christ. Bringing them out of the slavery, out of the bondage of Egypt. He's bringing them, he's lifting them up, he's bringing them out. All of Israel is a type for us, 1 Corinthians 10:11, an example. The word is tupos, actually tells you. Look at Israel. They, have, they are an example to you. So he brings them out. He, to, the escape from death in Egypt is for us to apply to our own escape, escape from death. Again, he's rescuing. We're escaping. It's what he does. Come with me. You will escape from death. Egypt is a picture of death. The Pharaoh is obviously who in the type, in the example. He's the one that has you in bondage. He's the one that's keeping you. Remember, Samson comes down, takes the gate, goes up on the mountain, throws the gate away. People escape. Escape death. We are saved from death through the blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation, again, the fundamental of the Bible. Continue the natural progression then. The blue tassels relate directly to God resurrecting God. Which is why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. If Christ, if God did not resurrect God, if that is not God who is resurrected, and it didn't take God to resurrect him, because if it didn't take God to resurrect him, then God's not God. Does that make sense? And if God's not resurrecting God, then what does he say about us? We are the most miserable fools that have ever lived, and the most to be pitied. The way you escape death is God resurrects God. Okay, why blue? That's the best way to approach it. What would you do? We got a couple minutes. You can do it inversely or you can do it collectively. What's red? You didn't choose red. What's red? Red is blood. The goat with the crimson cord, right? It escapes to Azazel, right Rahab in the crimson rope. The crimson worm of Jonah and Psalm 22, that's red. We got red pretty well established, don't we? It's not red. All of those were aspects of the blood of Christ. Purple, what's purple? Purple is a king reference, royalty. Christ was declared a king by most, excuse me, by most... uh, 
by acclamation, I would say, that, that uh, Christ had a purple garment. But we don't know that. But purple has a, a royalty or a kingdom reference, a kingship reference. It also is blue and red combined. And so some people see the hypostatic union there. Christ's hair is what color in Revelation? He's the light of life there. It's white. So blue, the veil that gets you into the Holy of Holies has blue thread in it. At the time of the crucifixion, it's torn, right? Blue is in the priesthood garments of Aaron. Mordecai went out of the presence of the king in a royal apparel of blue and white with a crown of gold. So we're going to have to go and assemble all of those passages to understand the meanings of the blue tassels, right? That's the collective way of doing it, as well as the elimination method. As usual, God explains it fully. He does. He makes it as clear as he can. He explains the blue tassels. He just doesn't do it at Numbers 15. Why doesn't he do it at Numbers 15? I get this complaint all the time. God says blue tassels, and then it's never, it's never there. You've got to go hunt for it. Why does he make us do that? Because he's clearly doing that, isn't he? He's making us. We're going to have to accumulate all the passels, all the passages that refer to Numbers 15:38, of which there are quite a few. The most known place where I have somebody with blue tassels is Christ has blue tassels where? His blue tassels in Revelation 19.16. Absolutely does. You're right about that. But the most famous, I would say to you, is Luke 8.43. Where that woman comes up and grabs those blue tassels. And he says, who touched me? He's omniscient God. He knows who touched me. He's asking it for the people that are around that don't know that this woman bleeding touched him. And she's now healed by grabbing the blue tassels on the corners of his talit. Revelation 19.16, as Christ comes back and he has the blue tassels over his thigh. But we're going to answer it differently. We're going to answer it at Deuteronomy because I love hate mail. And I've not been getting enough of it. So I thought I would try to raise the stakes. And here it's going to come. Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 12. So let's take a run at it. I can't help but smile because I find this very cool. Also a little bit, um, well, I shouldn't say, so I won't. Deuteronomy 22. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. What's he saying? You see your brother's ox and sheep going astray? Don't hide. Why would somebody hide, you ask? You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you or if you do not know him, what do you mean you don't know your brother? Oh, it must not be a brother, brother. It must be a brother, brother. Does that make sense? 
<laughs> you all say that it made sense. That's fantastic. <laughs> How intimidating you are to the internet audience. Then you shall bring it to your house, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey, and so shall you do with his garment. And any lost thing of your brother's which he has lost and you have found, you shall do likewise, and you must not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself. Getting the, the picture here, the thesis. And hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man. Nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. There comes my eight mail. Can't wait. This will be fun. Will they get that right? No, they will not. Guarantee it. They can't figure it out. There's no way they can figure it out. They have to have God teach them it. But there it is. If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof. A parapet wall is that is a maybe a two-foot or four-foot wall that goes around a flat area so that you don't fall off, in case you need to know that. I've built hundreds of them, I think. I'm tired of building them. Uh, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. And all that stuff I just gave you, all of it relates to what? Blue tassels. It explains the meaning of blue tassels. You shall make tassels on the four corners of your clothing with which you cover yourself. So, all of that, you shall not hide yourself. You're going to go find the ox. You're going to wait and keep it until somebody that owns it comes by. You don't wear women's clothing. You don't wear men's clothing. You don't grab the mother of the chickens or the mother of the... You grab the eggs and the chicks, but you don't take the mother. You don't mix linen with wool. You don't plow an ox with a donkey. All of that stuff. You gotta build a parapet wall. All of that tells you what blue tassels mean. And next week, we will figure out blue tassels. Or you can do it on your own, as so many of you do. As the musicians come forward.